Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, an original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Hello and welcome to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that never gets less than 200 people for its masterclasses, no matter what the subject. It's that time of the month again where I, crypto writer and Greenpeace artist commissioner Mark Hunter, am joined by hex whale Arthur Van Pelt to review what's been going on at the Craig Wright Crazy Farm this month. Arthur, have you got your garden wellage ready to trudge through the mire? (laughs) Yes, sir. Fantastic stuff. Let's crack on then. We start, wouldn't you know it, in Lawsuit Corner, kicking off with a look into the goings-on in the Kleiman versus Wright case. This will be covered in more depth in our bonus episode next month because there's so much to catch up on, but we'll do our best to cover it all here. As those who pay attention to such things will know, we've seen multiple filings and rulings in the past few weeks on this case, with the accusations getting more and more outlandish, and we'll run through the key ones here. For more detail, of course, please check out our forthcoming bonus episode. To start then, let's look at Wright's attempts to get the two legal teams representing WNK Info Defence, Friedman Norman Friedland, which we'll call FNF, and Boys Schiller kicked from the case, even though the only remaining issue is the collection of the $143 million owed to WNK. Wright has been desperate to get the two law firms kicked from the case following the Kyle Roche affair, as have Lynn Wright and Ramona Ang from theirs. This effort comes at the same time as Ramona Ang is trying to get Paul Huck from the Huck law firm installed as W&K's legal representative in the Kleiman vs. Wright case, claiming that she is the majority owner of W&K. Arthur, before we look at what's happened this month, can you offer any insight into why Craig, Lynn and Ramona want to get rid of FNF and Boys Schiller so badly? Yeah, Mark, I think that uh, Craig is desperate uh, to avoid this $143 million to Ira Kleiman. So he's pulling every trick from his sleeves uh, that he can think of, only to delay the inevitable, of course. But yeah, the thing is, as long as he is not kicked out of the courtroom uh, with a default judgment that will stop uh, all his false and fraudulent uh, shenanigans, yeah, he gets away with all this nonsense. Up to this point, every effort the Wrights and Ang have made has failed, including Wright trying to get them kicked from the WNK appeal hearing. Having previously dropped his claim after Judge Bloom refused it, Wright renewed his demands to have the two firms kicked from the W&K case in January, following the demand that Wright fill in the 1.977 debtors form. Wright used Ira Kleiman's public dissatisfaction with FNF's trial performance and the collection delay as new evidence to back up his assertion of a conflict of interest between W&K and the two firms' personal interests. He also claimed that FNF and BSF's actions were prejudicial to the administration of justice, that Kyle Roche's actions must be imputed to the firms, holding them equally culpable for his misdemeanours, and that Wright would be unfairly prejudiced if the firms were allowed to stay on. Wright also demanded an evidentiary hearing into the matter. Rather hilariously, Judge Reinhardt denied all Wright's claims, saying he was wrong on every count, that in some cases his appeals had come too late, and that he didn't provide enough evidence of personal injury to allow him standing to bring the claim in the first place. Another win to chalk up on the victory board. Arthur, interestingly, this ruling came just after Judge Reinhardt ruled that the Huck law firm would also not be kicked from the case, but for a very different reason. Now, Judge Reinhardt himself knows that the Tulip Trust, which is the vehicle through which Ramona Ang claims that she owns W&K, isn't real. So why did he allow the Huck law firm to remain? Yeah, that was a bit of a surprising technicality that Judge Reinhardt uh, pulled from his head, uh, didn't he? Actually, it's understandable. In summary, it goes like this. I found a quote somewhere that explained it best for me. And that quote goes like this. The dispositive rules of decision are under Florida law and no federal question is presented. So it means that Judge Reinhardt is pulling his hands from this question and he is leaving it to the district judges who is allowed uh, to represent who. It simply isn't in Reinhardt's jurisdiction to rule on the ownership of WNK with the Lynn Wright versus Ira Climate case ongoing regarding that exact issue. And if the issue of WNK ownership wasn't a knock-on effect of this ruling, or if there was no Lynn Wright case, 
then Reinhardt may have offered a different judgment, but in this case, in the current circumstances, Reinhardt essentially had to rule this way. So we have to deal with it, uh, Mark. So this leaves us in the interesting position of having multiple law firms all representing the plaintiff, one of which has been used by the plaintiff ever since the case began five years ago, but which has been accused of essentially sabotaging its client, and the other that has been put in place by the defence and that may or may not have any power to actually do anything. In theory, this shouldn't affect the collection of the $143 million, so long as Judge Reinhardt doesn't suddenly decide that it can't proceed until the representative issue has been sorted. If that happens, we'd be waiting for the Lynn Wright versus Ira Kleiman case to complete, which won't complete until the Kleiman versus Wright appeal is dealt with, which is due in August. If Ira wins that, he gets a new trial. If he loses, the Supreme Court may beckon. So we have that case, plus any appeals that stem from a retrial, before Lynn versus Ira can go ahead. Then we would have any appeals that stem from that case. Only once the final appeal is heard in the Lynn Wright vs Ira Kleiman case will the judge be able to say unequivocally who legally owns W&K, by which point we'll all be dead of old age. All being well, however, Judge Reinhardt won't let the Huck imposter stand in the way of collection. And talking of collection, this was another area that was discussed this month, with Wright's legal team doing all they could to stop him having to fill out the debtors form. Arthur, why is Craig Wright so keen to avoid doing this? Yeah, I think that makes uh, that makes sense. Try to position yourself in his shoes, uh, because whatever Craig Wright is uh, going to list on that uh, on that forum, Ira Kleiman will immediately try to uh, to confiscate it uh, if possible. So he's uh, of course trying to drag it out as long as possible and try to get uh, as as less uh, assets on that forum as possible. But he has to tell the truth, right? And he's been moving ownership of his companies around in the last few months, as we know. Oddly, he's been boasting about his wealth a lot since the form was raised, which seems like a potentially silly move to me, but there we go. I still think he's delaying things so he can arrange his affairs to make it look like everything is in other people's names. What do you think? Yeah, that's what I also think. First of all, I don't think he has anything anyway. I mean, he was fleeing from Australia when he was totally bankrupt. And since then, okay, he had a salary, but for the rest, everything is paid by uh, yeah, his camp, mainly Calvin Air. And what he will try to lock up elsewhere on other people's names is uh, either fake, non-existing, or yeah, made up. Think about the, the Tulip Trust. Think about his uh, so-called Satoshi assets. Think about his copyright on things that doesn't exist. So he will likely create an uh, obfuscating and uh, incomplete uh, paper trail and tell some nonsense about it later and create some additional forgeries uh, to support uh, the backdated uh, nonsense. It becomes a bit uh, predictable what this uh, guy is doing all the time. Last month, Wright fought the arguments to get him to fill it out, claiming that the court couldn't force him to do something it hadn't already ordered, viz. the filling out of the form, Ira Kleiman doesn't have the right to represent W&K, here we go again, and the legal challenge around FNF's presence in the case. Judge Reinhardt ruled on this at the start of March, and Arthur, what did he say? Reinhardt clearly wasn't very impressed with the... Craig's antics uh, in this case. He said, here I'll quote again, this litigation has been proceeding for an extended period of time. All that remains are potential post-judgment collection proceedings. The interests of justice are not served by disrupting and delaying these proceedings by requiring new counsel to take over. Disqualifying the firms would substantially prejudice WNK. Conversely, Dr. Wright has not shown how he is unfairly prejudiced by allowing the firms to remain in the case. He has also not shown that the public's perception of the legal profession would be adversely affected by allowing the firms to remain as counsel. At the end of the day, resolving this motion is simple. WIK is a judgment creditor. It asks for an order requiring the judgment debtor to fill out Form 1977. The motion to compel was signed by lawyers who have properly entered appearances for W&K and remain counsel for W&K. The Florida Rules of Civil Procedure require the court to order the debtor fill out the form. None of the debtor's arguments present a legal reason why the court is excused from that obligation. Wherefore, it is ordered that W&K's motion to compel is granted. On or before April the 1st, 2023, 
Dr. Wright shall complete the fact information sheet form 1977 from the Florida Rules of Civil Procedures, including all attachments. There you go, Mark. Indeed, Wright was ordered to fill out the form as well as 11 attachments included in the court docket before April 1st, but Rivero Mestre weren't having that. It appealed, bringing in no new arguments whatsoever and simply rehashing the already rejected ones in a much more enraged tone. The day after this, it then filed a request to stay the completion of the form, citing the exact same claims, but also adding the outrageous claim that Wright will suffer irreparable damage if he were compelled to fill out the form, and that, because he was likely to win the appeal that Rivero Mestre filed the previous day, the stay was warranted. Arthur, what is the argument for Wright suffering irreparable damage if he's told to fill in the 1.977 form? You know, the argument from Craig's side wasn't even that bad. <laughs> I'll give them that. <laughs> because, yeah, nay, 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 credit where credit is, is due. <laughs> Rivero Mestro claimed, because, I, I quote again, the damage that he, and I mean Craig right here, of course, could suffer by putting that sensitive information in the hands of the law firms is considerable. Kyle Roche admitted on video that he uses the litigation process to learn the confidential information and trade secrets of those he sues for the benefit of AVA Labs. And while Kyle Roche may no longer be with Roche Friedman, the remaining partners retain some interest in AVA Labs. For that reason, they cannot be trusted with Dr. Wright's financial information. Now, seriously, I cannot blame them for making this argument, uh, Mark, seriously. I mean, anything's worth a try, but I think that's just disgusting. I really don't like that argument at all. It's just I mean, I don't know these guys that well, but I think to to insinuate that that someone's personal information is not safe with a law firm anyway is is awful. But I don't know. It it just strikes me as being totally disingenuous and the most desperate of desperate appeals to 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 get Craig right off this. I mean, it did not mean much to me. I, it did not shock shock me really because I mean, yeah. You know how people can talk sometimes and they can brag about things and they can be a bit have a bit of uh, bravura, etc. But Kyle Roche did indeed make a few remarks that hinted at exactly this thing. Mm -hmm. And if I would be a lawyer that was trying to get everything out of the case that I needed uh, to try, then I would try this. So of course this is disingenuous. But if you are in the situation of Craig Wright, and you have that video, I would probably do exactly the same. So that, that's why I have to give I have to give them a little bit of credit for making this argument. Fair enough. Fair enough. Ira Kleiman's legal team then filed its response to this. Um, and Arthur, I don't think I've encountered such a brilliantly worded takedown of Wright and his uh, his legal team. What were some of your highlights here? I'm assuming there's quite a few. Yeah. Oh, absolutely agree, Mark. It, it's legal poetry. Hmm. It starts with an introduction that says, lest there be any doubt what is going on here. Judgment debtor Wright with the complicity of his wife, ex-wife and counsel. And I found this, this part particularly interesting that they are also mentioning the counsel because they are also, in my opinion, complicit in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll continue. Is arguing that he does not need to comply with the rules regarding the collection of a final unappealed judgment because after over five years of litigation, four weeks of trial and multiple failed attempts to argue others owned WNK, he now claims that his family actually owned WNK. That is really the core of his argument and the basis for his bad faith legal maneuverings. Given his history of perjury, forgery, fabrication and other conduct antithetical to the administration of justice, in this court alone, including his well-documented inability to keep his story straight about the ownership of WNK, none of this is a surprise. Hmm. Now, then it continues a bit later. It appears, however, that Wright believes his court will change its mind if he just lies one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about saying, uh, how do you call it? Uh, calling an, uh, a spade a spade. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, one last quote, uh, Mark. I like this one also. Please do. Wright's plan is as obvious as it is ridiculous to try and wrest control of WNK and cause it to release its judgment against him. 
honestly, you can't make this stuff up. Whether Alice in Wonderland or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it should not be <laughs> countenanced in a federal court. Rights, appeal and motion to stay should be summarily denied. WNK, through counsel, properly moved to compel completion and execution of a Rule 1977 form. Judge Reinhardt granted that motion and there is no basis to disturb that ruling. You can hear their frustration coming through, can't you? Yeah, you, you have to be so patient to cope with this nonsense. And in that sense, I have a lot of respect for Fel Friedman and his friends uh, dealing uh, with this. Mm. Yeah, nay, indeed. Now, with the 1st of April deadline looming and with Wright publicly moving the domesticity of his various shell companies around, both parties were told to present their final arguments on the 22nd of March. And right at the time of this recording, we got the verdict. We go now live to our Kleiman versus Wright correspondent Arthur Van Pelt for the breaking news. Yeah, it is coming so hot from the court docket. I mean, the the, the ink is still uh, dripping from the, from the paper, uh, so to say. It certainly is. So yeah, I will quickly do the, the, last, uh, the last page. Accordingly, Dr. Wright has failed to establish that the magistrate judge's ruling was clearly erroneous or contrary to law. And as such, his objections are overruled. Conclusion. Accordingly, it is ordered and adjudged as follows. Dr. Wright's objections are overruled and Judge Reinhardt's order on WNK's motion to compel is affirmed. Dr. Wright shall comply with Judge Reinhardt's order, which requires Dr. Wright to complete Form 1977 no later than April the 1st, 2023. However, given that April the 1st falls on a Saturday, Dr. Wright has until the next business day, April the 3rd, 2023, to complete the form. Now, and here we go, Mark. This part, uh, this part is especially interesting. Failure to complete Form 1977 by April the 3rd, 2023, will result in Dr. Wright being held in contempt. That word again. Yeah, here we, yeah, here we go again. This is also going on uh, currently in uh, in the UK, uh, as we know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is now uh, the second uh, time in a short while that uh, uh, it, it has not happened. So we have to wait until April the 3rd. So let's see. The effect of this is that where Judge Reinhardt said you have to fill in this form, Craig appealed, so it uh, came to Judge Beth Bloom, who is uh, the boss over the case, and she also said the same as Judge Reinhardt, you have to fill in that form and uh, list all your assets uh, that fall under uh, under this uh, under this case for uh, for debt collection. That brings us to the end of our Kleiman versus Wright recap, but what we've discussed here is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what has gone down in this case in the past few weeks. So if you want a full takedown of Wright's attempts to prevent justice from being done, check out next month's bonus episode. This month also saw defences filed in the Bitcoin copyright cases that we mentioned last month and covered in more depth in this month's bonus episode. To recap, Wright is suing 26 entities, including several crypto companies such as Blockstream, Block and Coinbase, as well as the same list of developers that are already being sued in the Pineapple Hack case. Wright claims that, as Bitcoin's creator, he has copyright over three things – the Bitcoin white paper, the Bitcoin database and the Bitcoin file format. He filed these claims, all wrapped up in one suit which we'll call the Bitcoin copyright case, which he filed with the Business and Property Courts last year. We already know the Bitcoin file format element was thrown out by the court and that Wright has, or will, appeal, and this month it was the turn of the defendants to file their first rebuttal. Coinbase filed theirs on March 10th, with the developers filing theirs a week later. Arthur, we don't yet have access to the Coinbase rebuttal, but what were some of your standout arguments from the developers? Oh, the most important one to me, uh, Mark, it's, it's this one. And if I mention C1, then it is Craig Wright. The Bird and Bird defendants deny all and any claims to the effect that he, Craig Wright, is the individual widely known as Satoshi Nakamoto, otherwise authored the Bitcoin white paper and or invented, launched or was the driving force behind the development of the technology described in the document. So what I found interesting of this quote, they 
all completely reject the idea that Craig Wright is Satoshi or had anything to do with Bitcoin's design, with coding it up, and yeah, and let alone uh, releasing it. And of course they are right. I mean, I, I have never found any evidence that Craig Wright even knew about Bitcoin before July 2011. But also they all reject the hilarious idea that BSV is Bitcoin. Now, that's, here comes another quote. It is denied that BSV cryptocurrency, system, network and blockchain are a continuation of the original Bitcoin blockchain, the original Bitcoin network and the original Bitcoin system, which were created by Satoshi from 9 January 2009. The BSV system, blockchain and cryptocurrency were created following the chain split that occurred on November the 15th of 2018. And then they basically deny and reject everything else that Craig Wright claims about Satoshi or Bitcoin and, for example, the purpose of Bitcoin. Craig says micropayments and the developers reply that Satoshi actually never mentioned that word in the white paper and instead mentioned on the Bitcoin forum, Bitcoin isn't currently practical for very small micropayments. Yeah, and it goes on and on like this, uh, Mark. It's a very interesting read. Yeah, it is. And I can't imagine that the Coinbase one is massively different. I think they're, they're going to be largely on the same page as far as arguments go, aren't they? I, I believe so. Yeah, I think they, they are they all found. I mean, we can only depend our uh, opinions on what we find uh, information. Those UK cases are not public. It's so expensive. Well, you know what we need to do. We need to ask MasterCard for a pay rise. They're not paying us enough, obviously. They can foot the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Wright has also been discussing the evidence from the Hodlinaut trial this month. In particular, a piece that, Arthur, I believe you know well. What's the story behind the JSTOR article? Oh yeah, a beautiful story. It was a document that Craig uh, showed in front of the of the webcam to a reporter of modern uh, consensus, and uh, yeah, that guy made several uh, screenshots and in that article that he published in uh, in back in two thousand and nineteen. So we found several screenshots of a document that he claimed. Okay, Craig said that he printed the document in two thousand and eight. That was the moment that he chose the moniker Satoshi Nakamoto. So the Bitcoin community. Several members started to zoom in on those images and they quickly found several discrepancies in the fonts. Hmm. For example, the year 2008 was indeed mentioned, a printed data, so it's a computer font, but the 2.0 part was in a different printed font as the 08 part of that year. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty clear that Craig had just created that forgery pretty recently. Yeah, let's say in 2019. So when he prints that out, it will come out with a print date of 2019. And when you have to change that, you have to change the 1 and a 9 to a 0 and an 8. And if you don't do that in the proper font, it will be visible on the new printout of that same document. I hope you get a little bit of a, of a, of a sense, of a feeling how that forgery stuff uh, works. Yeah, definitely. So now what happened next, this exact same document that Craig showed on the webcam in 2019 popped up in the Hodlnot Norway case three years later when we learned about a big fat report that Norwegian forensic reports uh, experts of uh, KPMG had made up in which this exact JSTOR document was burned to the ground as a backdated forgery based on even more evidence that they found uh, which included the year font thing that the Bitcoin community uh, had already found in 2019. Mm -hmm. And why do we know that it was the exact same document, the exact same printout? Because Craig had been uh, writing a sentence on that, and I, I don't remember the, the sentence anymore, to be fair, but he, he wrote something on that printout to make it even, uh, to make it look even more genuine, quote unquote, uh, as it already was. And because of that handwriting, we could immediately see that it was the same document with the same handwriting on it uh, in 2022, mentioned in the KPMG uh, report. But the forensic experts uh, said, yeah, uh, there is a mistake in the year 2008. It has two different fonts. And we also found this mistake, this mistake, this mistake, the handfuls <laughs> of mistakes they found on that uh, on the documents. And 
where in 2019 they found uh, like three, uh, in 2022 they found like uh, 10 or 12 uh, mistakes on the top. <laughs> amazing, yeah, it was amazing, amazing. The JSTOR file was used by a Twitter user named Kiki6633 as an example of Wright's submission to forged documents, with Wright making the astonishing claim that I'm yet to see a valid example of a lie that I have purported to have said. Yes, I've said before that I think it's raining, and it has been. I've said that I think the weather will be good, and it didn't work out. Not lies. Wright then asked for specific evidence of claims he has lied about in the past, saying that it's hard when you're a poor little troll and someone calls out your cowardice. Kiki6633 pointed to the JSTOR article and asked Wright to explain why a document he said was genuine and that he put into evidence in the Hodenort trial turned out to be fake. Wright replied, These are things that go into court cases and there is nothing to debunk. There is no electronic analysis of paper documents. And nothing that was said has any real value other than, in my opinion, I haven't seen something. Honestly, the so-called forensic person was the worst and least professional individual that I've ever had the displeasure of working with in any way. Arthur, we've got a few things to unpack here. Firstly, these are things that go into court cases and there is nothing to debunk. I'm not sure I get his argument here. Is he saying that all evidence should just be accepted without investigation of its authenticity? Yeah, it appears so, uh, Mark. To be honest, I have no idea. Craig has his own way of saying uh, things, uh, obfuscating uh, things, and this seems to be one of them. In the end, it doesn't matter much what he, uh, what he is saying, of course, because everyone in a legal case with him knows that his physical evidence basically <laughs> sucks. <laughs> it's always a forgery until <laughs> proven otherwise, uh, so to say. Pretty much. Um, next, there is no electronic analysis of paper documents. Was there electronic analysis of paper documents in the Hodlinort trial? Well, no, not as literally as he is as it is mentioned here, because that is of course technically impossible, and Craig knows that, so that is why he is, can be so literal every now and then. But don't forget, there was, however, a scanned uh, paper document that Craig handed over in the Hodlnot case. And guess what? KPMG even found flaws in that document because, again, there were font differences in the same scan mm. on places where they uh, technically cannot occur unless you fraudulently alter the document. So, finally, his criticism of the so-called forensic person in a follow-up tweet, he said that he was referring to someone from Hodlinot's forensic team who he said conducted low-quality electronic evidence. Were they the bunch of amateurs he's making them out to be? No, certainly not. Of course not. Those uh, KPMG people were actually pretty good at a job as uh, Craig hired uh, BDO and another firm that I forgot uh, the name of. And they tried to debunk all the findings of uh, KPMG. But what actually happened, both these firms that try to debunk the KPMG report uh, findings, they basically agreed with the findings of KPMG. And they were not able to debunk anything during the trial in Norway uh, last year. Another couple of things I took from this interaction. Firstly, he never actually refuted the claim that it was manipulated, just attacked the KPMG guys. And secondly, instead of the usual buy troll, he chose to engage with this person. Now, it seems to me that he only actually engages with people when he thinks he can defeat them in a Twitter battle, but any time anyone makes a claim he can't suitably argue against, then they get the buy troll. Is that the same thing that you've observed? Yeah, absolutely. When Craig thinks that he can win in a debate, he will try to engage. But when he can't or is not happy with the subject that someone, someone is bringing up, then yeah, he quickly blocks that person on the other side of the conversation and that blocking is uh, he's doing that a lot mark no he certainly is now someone else chimed in at the end of the argument to throw a couple of slurs at you arthur this person said that kiki6633 was unable to show any specific examples other than a repeatedly quoting artie van pelt whose faked evidence even the lawyers of mccormack have rejected because they wouldn't stand up to the scrutiny in a court of law now, I looked into this a little bit further, and apparently you faked a bunch of anti-right evidence and submitted it to Peter McCormack's legal team, but they rejected it. You didn't tell me you'd done this. <laughs> well, only when you made me aware of this, I, I, I checked it out, because I seriously was not even aware of that conversation. 
Um, but I know the reason already because it came from a guy called uh, Dick Kata. And I might have interacted with him like four years ago once. And then he knew already that I'm uh, bad news for uh, for his camp. So he blocked me and he, he also blocked me on uh, on, the, on my latest account uh, that I've uh, that I'm using my now I'm called uh, Arthur van Pelt on uh, Twitter. But anyway, what he actually said, I, I found it so funny. Hmm. So what he is suggesting that I have indeed been creating evidence that I have offered that to Peter McCormick and his counsel and that they rejected my evidence because they knew beforehand that my created evidence would not go through the scrutiny in court. What? Hmm. Well, uh, let let me tell you, Mark, nothing of this or even remotely close to this has ever happened. As far as I know, Peter McCormick has never even tried to use my material. I have never seen quotes and whatever. I have not even offered a splinter of any homemade evidence that would suit his case because that was not what it was about. It was about debunking or trying to debunk the forgeries that Craig Wright throw over the fence to Peter McCormick. And Peter McCormick decided not to do that because it would be uh, millions and millions in uh, British pounds and would bankrupt him uh, instantly. Uh, uh, so what what reason would I have to forge evidence to help Peter McCormick? I mean... Don't try and make sense of it. It makes no sense. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> and then it, it ended up that the case was uh, lost by uh, Craig Wright anyway. Because it was from another angle about the conferences where he was kicked, uh, not because of uh, Peter's tweets, but because his papers were uh, not up to par for for his uh, speaking slots. That's why he was uh, rejected. So your fake evidence wasn't even needed after all that? Peter McCormick did not need any evidence whatsoever. He needed to debunk evidence. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, where this Decata, yeah, where they get this from, I have no idea what's going through their brain, seriously. <laughs> now, staying with Wright for a moment, he's given us more clues as to the new direction in which he's taking his I won't sign mantra. Back in 2016, Wright said he wouldn't sign because, echoing Jean-Paul Sartre's rejection of a Nobel Prize, he didn't want to be the person he would become if he did sign and prove his Satoshiness. Then in 2018, he pivoted to the argument that signing didn't prove identity. During the Hodlinaut trial, he said he wouldn't sign because it would mean people would ignore his work and just focus on the signing. And now we have a new explanation. He doesn't want his army of doubters to change their minds and fall in love with him when he signs. Wright tweeted this month, apropos of nothing, Basically, the type of scum that I hate, the low-life cypherpunks and general Marxists will support me if I digitally sign and do what they want. I'd rather be eaten alive by ants than do anything for that bunch of sycophantic scum. Arthur, I'm not sure you can call people who are asking you to do something you're refusing to do sycophants, especially given that his followers are the ones who swoon over him every time he posts a picture of his sports car. What is his Slack group, if not for a bunch of paid-up sycophants? <laughs> yeah. I had, I know that a sycophant means uh, it's a flatterer or insincere flatterer, and I'm pretty sure that the BSV community has uh, quite a few of them, and they gathered in Craig Wright's uh, Slack room to basically flatter him and praise his uh, strong language. Indeed they do. Now, he backed up this new direction with a bunch of tweets over the following day, telling one person who urged him to move just one of your 1 million BTC from your legacy account, as stated, I do not want scum to follow me, get lost. When another said, just move one BTC from Satoshi Wallet and I will believe, Wright replied, go away scum, we do not want you. Arthur, two things here. Firstly, why does he automatically think that people will support him and lord him from the rooftops if he signs a block or sends a coin? And secondly, do you think we'll see this new pivot in his upcoming court cases? Yeah, all I see happening, Mark, is that Craig Wright is trying to find every possible lame, lamer and lamest excuse to not perform an actual signing uh, of an unknown public Satoshi Bitcoin address. And it makes sense because Craig simply can't sign. He never could and he never will be able to uh, sign. So of course Craig Wright will bring these excuses uh, to court and it wouldn't surprise me to see even more excuses that we didn't even think of yet in the upcoming month. 
I mean, didn't we all roll on the floor when Craig said that he stomped on the hard drive mm. with the private keys and, <laughs> yeah. and somewhat related when they couldn't find any Dave Crime in Bitcoin that uh, Craig said that Dave had been mining on the Bitcoin testnet. <laughs> <laughs> the famous Bitcoin testnet. Yeah, it was wonderful. Now, we're going to leave Lawsuit Corner here and sashay over to a different part of the duplex called the Patent Penthouse, where, Arthur, I believe you have some updates on appeals regarding Craig Wright's patent applications. Well, yes, sir. Um, not only me, by the way, it, because I do, I do most of that with my, uh, with my friend David Pierce. He is uh, my partner in crime when it comes to the, to the patents. And he is, of course, uh, a lawyer, so he knows about that stuff uh, way more than I do. But uh, together we just filed our second opposition to one of Greg Wright's patents. And it's a bit of a complicated story, but the meat of the opposition is that we, or of course actually David, mostly found out that Craig Wright stole material from no other than Andreas Antonopoulos to create his patent. And that is uh, of course called prior art, then huh? prior art exists, and that means that the patent is not very novel. And it also means that it should never have been approved by the European Patent Office. Now, and on the same day that I filed uh, the opposition and uh, David paid uh, the 840 euro, which is the filing fee, David had more good news because he tweeted, and now I will quote him, some more good news from Enchain Euro Patenting Land today. Decisions to refuse three, eh, no less than three of the European patent applications have now become final. Now, then there was, there was one patent attempted to claim transactions that included constraints with block headers and other things. And the EPO, which is the European Patent Office, found this lacked inventive step over Antonopoulos mastering Bitcoin. Now, in section D1, uh, I think it refers to. But it means, again, that Craig Wright has been taking stuff from Andreas Antonopoulos' work and pretend it was his own hmm. and think that he can patent it. And in this case, there are three of them, the European Patent Office, after they filed, they check it and they already noticed, yeah, but it, this, this is stuff that has already been uh, described. This is prior art. Now, there was also, uh, then David Pierce describes another patent. Uh, this patent attempted to claim a method of determining validity of a token, which the EPO again found to lack inventive step over, here he is again, Antonopoulos, mm -hmm. with narrowing features being merely administrative and not patentable. Now, and the third patent uh, attempted to claim some kind of transaction with redeemed scripts and metadata. And the EPO, again starting from Antonopoulos, found this to lack inventive step for defining only administrative futures. Now, and then rather than appealing any of the decisions, Enchain have in each case filed uh, a divisional application to keep things going and have another attempt. Mm -hmm. And my prediction is that it will not work out well for them, but it will earn their attorneys a great deal of fees. Mm. And another prediction is that we most likely uh, will start seeing more of these refusals from the EPO who seem to be getting more and more familiar with Enchain's antics. They will keep getting some granted, but these will be mostly narrowed and technically irrelevant. Some that have been granted and perhaps others that are yet to be granted could however still be a threat. And this is why we need to keep a close eye on what they are doing and oppose where possible. So here, David is giving a little bit of a marketing twist for uh, my my work with uh, with him. But otherwise, yeah, I aim into that. Uh, and we are noticing uh, that our actions are uh, appreciated in this field. Yeah, you guys are doing great work. So thank you very much for that. Um, and we're also hoping to have David on in like a few weeks or so to give us an update on exactly where things are. So yeah, looking forward to that one. Elsewhere this month, Calvin Eyre has been spending the month desperately trying to convince everyone on the internet that BSV isn't a security, even going as far as telling us what the head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, means when he says Bitcoin. The fun started at the end of February when Gensler intimated that every single cryptocurrency bar Bitcoin is a security, clearly preferring the regulation by enforcement strategy, but that's by the by. 
Evidently worried that people might think that BSV falls into this category, Air tweeted something quite astonishing. Gensler was very clear not to use BTC. He used the name Bitcoin as this only refers to BSV. The original protocol on the original chain back to the original Genesis block with a locked protocol. This is the only one not a security. Arthur, if there was one tweet that sums up where we are in the cult cycle, I think this right here is it. There's a kind of life cycle to a cult where at first the claims are compelling, or at least very believable to some, which is how they attract a large following. Over time, though, the lines become more grandiose and the goalposts shift to deal with issues that crop up from the real world and which threaten the cult's logic and version of history. And then you get to a point where it's just a mental stretch too far, even for the most committed. And I think this is where we are right now. I have to assume that Calvin Ayer doesn't actually believe what he's writing here, but he has to say something to keep the followers from worrying. So he's trying to convince the BSV collective that Gary Gensler is not only fully aware of Craig Wright's version of Bitcoin's history, but he believes it, and rather than choosing to reference it directly, is, for reasons best known to himself, choosing not to use Bitcoin's ticker, which he has never done, by the way, but instead saying Bitcoin, secretly meaning BSV. I really do think we've crossed the Rubicon here, don't you? Yeah, this is indeed another fine point of no return, Mark. <laughs> but it's always hard to say if Calvin uh, yeah, really believes this nonsense about BSV being Bitcoin, uh, let alone that he is, uh, seriously thinks that uh, Gary Gensler is considering that BSV is Bitcoin. But, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that Gary Gensler has never even heard of BSV because it's it's nowhere to be seen uh, when you look at uh, the, the market cap lists and, and, and the media talking about BSV. The first response to this was an appropriate, come on bro, even this statement is a stretch. But of course, the cult was pacified, with the next respondent saying, looks spot on to me, classic playbook for how these guys operate. The same person added, Always Bitcoin, never BTC. They are slow walking this in the direction they want, keeping door open for future BTC actions without crashing market and spooking everyone too horribly. Arthur, from the little you know of Gary Gensler, and I'm assuming here he's not a regular dinner guest or anything, how concerned do you think he is about crashing the crypto market? <laughs> yeah, I never believed that this is first priority, of course, but... No, no, to worry about uh, crashes in the cryptocurrency markets? Nay, I don't see that. It's not his second priority either. I mean, those people are about enforcing regulation. That's all. So, with this particular bee in his bonnet, Air commissioned CoinGeek superstar Jordan Atkins to write a piece about how, you guessed it, Bitcoin is a security, but BSV isn't, because it's Bitcoin. The straw clutching began. SEC Chair Gary Gensler recently reiterated the SEC's long-standing position that as far as they are concerned, Bitcoin is not a security, while most other digital assets are. Gensler didn't say that BTC or BCH aren't securities, he said that Bitcoin is not a security, specifically thanks to the unique circumstances of its creation and issuance. Using this hastily constructed and dangerously fragile platform, the piece went on to argue exactly what you'd expect. That Gensler wasn't describing Bitcoin as it is now, he was describing the protocol that started out as Bitcoin, but got bastardised along the way, and which now resides only in BSV. Except that to avoid any potential confusion, Gensler used the ticker BSV and stated that it should be considered the real Bitcoin because... Oh no, no, my mistake, he obviously didn't do that because he's not mad. With this gold medal winning piece of mental gymnastics in place, however, Atkins went on to correctly state why Bitcoin isn't a security, before noting the complexities of the block size war, Segwit and the Lightning Network, all of which Gensler is of course intensely interested in and knowledgeable of, before boasting about all the lawsuits that Craig Wright has filed. At least there, he and Gensler have something in common. Calvin Eyre was obviously very proud of this piece, which was published on March 16th, because he's been desperate to get people to read it, so desperate that he's been plastering Twitter with links to it, even in places where the subject isn't even being discussed. Here are some tweets Eyre has replied to this month, where he has referenced the BSV securities piece. Zoltan will be joining the Concoda team as a senior plumbing analyst. Eyre replied with, worth the read, and a link. Justin, former President Trump says he'll be arrested on Tuesday and that people should protest. Air replied, and this, and linked to the article. 
The reason we're facing this financial crisis is fundamentally because there is no intraday market for funding the massive daily settlement imbalances that emerge organically in the system. Crypto markets actually handle this much better. Air replied, all you need to know and linked to the article. Finally, Charles Hoskinson, founder of the Cardano blockchain, urges the crypto community to ensure that only crypto-friendly politicians are voted for during future elections. Air replied, but then there is this that kind of makes crypto all a massive fraud, and linked to the article. There was one occasion when he managed to sound like a five-year-old in response to one tweet about how Bitcoin could hit $100,000 by 2024. Air replied, Bitcoin will not be that high and BTC is not Bitcoin and will also not be going up like this. Stay in school, kids. So desperate has Calvin Air been to convince the world that Gensler meant BSV when he said Bitcoin that he spammed Twitter with over 40 tweets linking to the CoinGeek piece within two weeks, copying in Gary Gensler at least 10 times. Seven of these were responses to tweets from the same account, WhaleChart, with Air's replies almost always coming in first. In fact, these tweets from the Whale Chart account, which purports to provide the latest news, insights and contrarian opinions in crypto and finance, has been putting out suspiciously pro-BSV and pro-right content of late, right at the time when Air is getting in first with his replies. Interestingly, when Whale Chart tweeted, what if Craig Wright really is Satoshi on March 17th, the first two responses were from Kurt Wackert Jr. and Calvin Air, who of course linked to the securities piece. Almost 12 hours later to the minute, another Twitter account, Bitcoin Gurukal, also tweeted, what if Craig Wright really is Satoshi? The first respondents, Calvin Eyre, with a link to the securities piece, Kurt Wackert Jr. and CoinGeek. Arthur, the only thing I have to say about this is what I tweeted out at the start of the month. Here is a guy who makes over a billion dollars, escapes the clutches of the US authorities, only to have to spend his days doing shit like this because of the mess he's got himself into. These are not the actions of a man who's comfy in his investment, are they? No, I don't think so. I, I, I still find it a bit hard to, to dive into his brain and, and try to figure out what, what is really, really his, his motivation. I mean, is he fully complicit or is he still bamboozled? I'm keeping two balls in, in the air about that. But the least I can say is that year after year, I keep wondering why Kelvin is even still attached to, to this total failure of a project. The guy is probably not stupid. He has not become a billionaire by being totally stupid. So he knows a little bit how things work in uh, in life. But how can you keep on pumping millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions even, into a an, an story that Craig Wright is telling you and has not been um, able to deliver on for like... No, we're talking about 2015 when they met and uh, and, and, and Kelvin, uh, Camp Kelvin Air bailed him out. So he is now eight years into this game. So how is Craig Wright keeping him on the hook huh? that long? Do not know. I don't know. I don't know. No one can fathom that one, I'm sure. We got a great indicator of how well Calvin Air's investment is doing when a project called Mint Blue claimed that it broke a world record when it crossed 50 million transactions in a 24-hour period. Arthur, what's the connection between Mint Blue and BSV? Yeah, I did, I did not hear much about that name, to be fair. So uh, a few weeks ago, I started looking them up for a bit when that record uh, fell. Uh, Mint Blue is an, an initiative you can call it a company, I think, uh, from the Netherlands, which is my home country. So yeah, you can see that Craig Wright has little clusters of fans uh, everywhere, and even in my country. I'm not so proud of it, but yeah, <laughs> I cannot do much about it also on the other side. What I found out, there's this little venture capitalist company called Two Hubs, I think they're called, this also from the, from the Netherlands. And it appears that they are very BSV friendly, so they invested uh, in this mint blue thing together with uh, the air group for a total of two million dollar i think it was in um 2022 about a year ago so yeah for me it was already pretty clear again this is another kelvin air circle jerk if if there is a world record it is done with Kelvin Ayer's money. It is not something that organically has popped up in the past. No, Kelvin Ayer has his finger in everything. 
You would have thought, then, that Mintblue would have been chomping at the bit to mention how the unbounded scaling of BSV allowed them to achieve this milestone. So how many times did they mention BSV in the press release and public notices? Not once. Calvin Ayer, for one, was not happy about this, tweeting in response to the post from the tech website tech.eu on the story, Mainstream media is brain dead. Entire article, and they don't bother to ask what blockchain is being used for this. Hint, only BSV scales, so for us, this is clearly BSV. However, as someone quickly pointed out, this was a sponsored article by Mintblue, so ask yourself, why would a business built on top of BSV omit BSV from their PR? Air replied, bafflingly, in that case, this was done right. But Arthur, I'll throw this to you. Why do you think Mintblue did omit BSV from its coverage? Yeah, that was a bit funny, wasn't it? <laughs> it was an odd one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, one would think that uh, the Mintblue press release would contain a reference to BSV all over the place. Uh, but I can only think that they thought that mentioning BSV uh, yeah, would probably harm their reputation. There is more to this story, however, including the little matter that the EOS blockchain reported that it achieved 60% more transactions in one day on its blockchain almost four years ago. Arthur, I'm sure Calvin Air had a calm, measured response to this. Of course, Mark. <laughs> of course, as always. Calvin calmly declared, I will quote for you, that was a fraud. And that tech does not work. This is independently provable. <laughs> <laughs> nee, so he, he declared uh, that whole EOS uh, thing uh, a fraud. So of course he was not so uh, calm. I remember that I tried to talk with the CEO or the, the, the main guy from uh, Mintblue and made him aware that this 50 million was not a, a, a world record because I, knew, I already knew that EOS was uh, and a bit later on that the narrative uh, caught uh, caught on and more people started talking about because I was very quickly mentioning that EOS already did more than 50 million. I remembered 80 million, so I quickly looked up the 80 million and I started to spread that uh, and, and reply here and there. And I may also made that main guy of uh, Mintblue aware that it was not a record at all. Now as always in the BSV uh, environment, when you mention something and try to correct their mistakes, they feel uh, yeah, offended and they immediately block you and not say, oh yeah, yeah, good that you mentioned it, sorry, yeah, my mistake. No, they will block you and uh, try to live on in their little bubble, their little dream of uh, having a uh, wonderful blockchain. <laughs> So what happened, I was blocked. I noticed, however, that uh, one or two days later, they still tried to make it a world record by not saying that it was a blockchain record, but by mentioning it, that it was a proof of work blockchain record. Ah. Because EOS is not a proof of work blockchain. <laughs> yeah, then it was like, oh my God, if you have to fool the audience yeah. like this, sorry, <laughs> you're lost. There was another amusing follow-on to this idea of record transactions on BSV this month. When Bitcoin passed $27,000 on its way to $28,800, one BSV supporter tweeted his rationale for this jump. People are confused. They see BSV hitting record transactions and think it is BTC, so they are throwing money at the wrong Bitcoin. Talking of buying and selling BSV, we finally have some trading data for BSV on Coinstore, the leading digital asset exchange on which BSV was listed last month among much excitement and rejoicing. After a month's worth of trading, the 24-hour trading volume for BSV on Coinstore is $39,000, which puts it in 34th, just behind Huobi. This may seem like a respectable position to be in, but let's not forget that LA Token's volume started out at double that when it listed BSV last August, and seven months later, it's less than 10 cents. So yeah, let's not blow up the party balloons just yet. It's also not great news for Coinstore, which is making just $78 per day in trading fees. Arthur, staying with exchanges, I asked you in January how long it would be before the likes of Bittrex and OKX delisted BSV, and we got our answer with one of these this month, didn't we? Oh, we certainly did. We can now add Bittrex, yes, but also Bitfavo to the long list of delistings, uh, Mark. 
I'm now on 18 delistings in three months. They, wow. it, it is seriously ramping up lately. Mm. Don't know why, and everybody has their own reasons, but it's seriously ramping up. Bitrex had four or five trading pairs with BSV on the platform, and all of them will be discontinued in early April. And this is actually quite fresh. Today, the day that we are recording now, which is March the 28th, also Bitfavo announced that they will fully delist BSV on April the 5th. Bitrex has long been heralded by the BSV community as the last exchange where Americans could sell their BSV for dollars and withdraw it to their bank accounts, and as one of the last holdouts it has never been mentioned in the same breath as the crypto exchange cartel so beloved of Calvin Air. The upshot of this is that Bittrex has pulled up the last off-ramp for American BSV users, which is why it's a bigger deal than all the other exchange delistings that have been clocking in at a regular pace since the 2019 mass delisting. Bittrex didn't state its reasons for removing all BSV trading pairs, which is something that exchanges rarely do, which naturally gave rise to the sorts of conspiracy theories that we on this podcast have come to look forward to immensely on occasions like this. And the BSV crew on Reddit didn't disappoint. I think this was expected. Remember, adoption will come from legit ways. No more crypto scamming businesses. All I'm reading is more insulation from the inevitable Tether crash. This latter point is an interesting one, based on the widely held belief that Tether is a house of cards ready to implode when someone actually looks at its bank accounts. This, however, neatly sidesteps the fact that Coinstore, which let's not forget CoinGeek called a leading digital asset exchange, has listed only one trading pair for BSV on its website, Tether. So much for that argument. As well as dismissals of the importance of the delisting, we naturally got the this is bullish narrative. When one respondent said, wow, that sucks, another replied, it's actually bullish. You just don't get it, friend. I recommend you read more of Craig's writings. When the person asked why it was bullish, the poster said, because this will force people to use BSV peer-to-peer as it was meant to be. Like I said, read Craig Wright. This conversation continued in a similar vein before someone else piped up, accurately, Jesus, this really has become a fucking cult. Things got weirder when one commenter said, Just look at Bittrex's Freemason symbol. Did anyone really think that they're going to keep BSV as a trading pair on their platform? My word. Twitter, too, was a hotbed of comment. Bittrex is removing the BSV USD support pair on April 7th, 2023. Lol, this stuff is about to get interesting. Sell what you need to survive the next year. Hoddle the rest for dear life. They are putting the squeeze to BSV. They do not want it getting out to the masses. This idea that they are trying to stop the masses from owning BSV was referenced with the last delisting, but it's rather undermined by the fact that Bittrex has been selling BSV ever since it launched in November 2018. So yeah, they've given the crypto buying public four and a half years to buy BSV, but they don't want it getting out to the masses? Sure. Another wondered, Bittrex always seemed apolitical. Did they succumb to laser eye pressure to drop BSV? Arthur, enough of this nonsense. We know very well now why exchanges are moving away from BSV. The cost of running a node is going up as the blockchain size increases, and the fees being brought in by BSV trading are simply not enough to cover it. This part of it is just basic economics, and yet these people think that Bitcoin supporters are somehow convincing exchanges to ditch BSV. But this is the kind of myopia we've come to expect, isn't it? It's always someone else's fault, never the tech. Yeah, indeed. Although I slowly start to see some BSV fans making a move. They try to understand what is really going on in BSV La 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 Land. And they are waking up to the harsh uh, reality. But the hardcore fans uh, have now fully moved uh, to the narrative that exchanges are not needed. Miners can sell straight to the users. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, we know that some exchanges have booted the BSV because of security concerns. Uh, For example, Robinhood cited the 51% attacks that have taken place in recent years. But it's worth talking about the impact of this notary tool, I think. Do you think exchanges are becoming concerned about getting involved in potential legal battles over allegedly stolen coins? Well, as as far as I know, not any exchange has mentioned uh, that there's a reason for delisting. But if I have to step into the shoes of uh, of a CEO of an exchange, then it would make total sense uh, to me that they had it in mind while they were delisting uh, BSV because it's quite a hassle 
to have tokens on your platform being blocked and seized from a distance from a random country or a random legal jurisdiction and then to see those tokens uh, go into directions that the exchange itself didn't expect or didn't approve while it is still liable for these tokens uh, anyway uh, towards their uh, customers. So yeah, they might then find themselves uh, involved in follow-up lawsuits uh, about these tokens, uh, etc. So it would also go with uh, stolen cars. If I'm in a car market and there is a brand of car that you know, 25 or 50% of those cars are stolen and they will be confiscated randomly from my uh, showroom. So yeah, nee, sorry, that's not a, not a brand of cars that I will <laughs> happily uh, show in my showroom and, uh, and, and, and try to deal with because it's uh, trouble with uh, police and, uh, and current owners and next owners and previous owners and uh, courtrooms and, uh, and a lot of hassle to try to make a few, uh, few pennies of, uh, of those type of cars. Imagine then that your commission on those cars is so small that it's just not even worth the hassle, is it? Yeah, exactly. We end this month on a speaker update from the Calvin Air and BSV-backed London Blockchain Conference, which takes place in June and which Enchain has been touting at every opportunity, calling Calvin Air a renowned tech investor and entrepreneur in the process. When this conference was first announced, speakers from Vodafone and HSBC were slated to be on the roster. But Arthur, something strange has happened to the speaker list in the meantime, hasn't it? Absolutely, it appears so. It, and it was pretty weird, if you ask me, because I checked that webpage with speakers and uh, and the day-to-day agenda uh, every now and then, because I, I like to follow what is, what is going on. And at some point, a few days, maybe a little bit more now already, uh, there was a pretty extensive uh, speakers list. And I didn't count them uh, every day, but... Uh, elsewhere on that website, it said that it were 100 and plus speakers. But a few days ago, all those speakers, except two or three handfuls, that belongs to the most innerest of the inner circle of uh, Kelvin Air, they have all gone. The only people left there are people who are on the direct payroll uh, of Kelvin Air, or they are working for a company where Kelvin Air has a substantial stake in their business as an investor or, or shareholder. For example, we see Kurt Wuckert, we see uh, Joshua Hensley, they are both from CoinGeek. Of course, they, they will be there as being a reporter, but now they have suddenly become speakers. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we find several uh, not so very well known because it are, of course, uh, very small companies who are hardly doing anything with BSV. So it, it, it appears to be an, uh, suddenly turning into a, a big f- failure. It e- either a lot of speakers have been pulling out for some reason, or that is also, that might be a little bit of a conspiracy theory of me, but also might have happened is that they uh, pulled all the speakers uh, from that list to try avoid people contacting them and making them aware uh, that it is a big scam going on. So it could be that they only list the speakers that they know that they will not be influenced by the bad news of BSV and they will not list or last minute they will list all that speakers again. On the other hand, uh, I already heard from the rumor mill that uh, indeed several speakers have pulled their uh, cooperation um, from from this after they became aware that it was a big uh, BSV uh, scam uh, conference. Let's just get this straight. This isn't a blockchain conference at all, is it? It's a BSV conference. Will there be any mention of any other blockchain other than BSV, do you think? Yeah, but I remember from the from the old speaker list uh, of a few weeks ago when, uh, let's say, 100 plus speakers were, were announced, it was a more wider range of, of people coming there. And I can imagine that when they start talking about regulation, about law, about uh, maybe other blockchains, then it might have been a bit of an, what you could call a blockchain conference. But what we now see on the speaker list, it's... 100% a BSV conference and BSV only. 
So at the moment, if you think that uh, if it goes on like this and they have these speakers and they fill a few days with 10 people, I cannot imagine that's ever going to happen. I think they're going to cancel the whole thing. But let's say they, they continue with it, then I presume that uh, BSV will be uh, the, the main story of the whole conference. And at the same time, it's also telling that the BSV brand name is not mentioned anywhere on that uh, on that conference uh, website. So they are also ashamed of using that name uh, by now. So, yeah, let's see how it goes. That's everything for Dr. Bitcoin this month. Don't forget you can learn much more about Craig Wright's Bitcoin copyright cases in our March bonus episode. And next month you can enjoy our deep dive into the latest in the Kleiman versus Wright case. For more information on how to get these and to get all our bonus content free for a week, head to drbitcoinpod.com. That's drbitcoinpod.com. Arthur, thank you once again for your invaluable insight. You're welcome, Mark. It was a pleasure again. Indeed it was, and I'll see you for the next one. Yes, sir. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd really appreciate a rating or even a quick review on your platform of choice in order to get this out to as many people as possible. For early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content, please consider becoming a supporter through Patreon or Anchor. See the details in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform in order to get new episodes the moment they drop. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter for podcast announcements and other nonsense, you'll find us at DrBitcoinPod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.